always um, surprising to hear the word of scripture in a way that feels so new. And that feels like a gift uh, to us. And in our congregation, we have so many different voices and uh, languages that are spoken. Okay. Are we ready to get going here? Do we need stools or chairs or anything? How do you feel about that? We always just sit up here. All right, friends, here's what we need to do. Here's what we need from you. I'm going to talk just a little bit about what we're doing up here and how we're going to do it. And then uh, if you have questions that you already have written down or things you would like us to engage, then you can just like hold that card up and Pastor Gretchen will come find it. And she's going to collect those. Very likely, always when this happens, we never have quite enough time to get through everything together. Um, but the idea here is, and I do feel like we probably need a stool or two. Do you think somebody who's like really crafty, you want to find us two stools? That There's be, one right here. This is like already happening in the moment. Just a little bit of improv together. Um, here is my central conviction. This is what we're aiming for today. And Pastor Lindsay and I have talked a little bit about this across the week. And we actually talk about this stuff all the time. Okay, Much less are we trying to tell you how to act in the world. Trying to sort of give you a prescribed way to live. And we are much more trying to create little Jesus people. (laughs) Trying to create the opportunities for you to be faithful over time. That's a very different project than telling you, like, here are the set of things that you have to do to please God. And much more, this is the kind of person you are trying to become. So that when opportunities, whenever ambiguities arise, when tensions arise, you can respond to those in faith. Because there's just no way that we would be able to, in every given situation, uh, tell you what the through path is that God is leading you to. But in fact, we are trying to create the kind of people that can together find that through path. So that's what we're going to do a little bit today. And the language that we've talked about is this language of like improvisation, where we all are in the midst of this big tradition that we call uh, Christianity, we call the gospel. And in the midst of that, we are sort of deepening these core convictions over and over and over again. This is like what we would call learning your scales in some forms of improv, like jazz music. Right? You don't just... Well, Brian, you're over here with jazz guitar. We talked about this last time. You don't just jump into a group and start to play improv jazz across whatever they're playing. These are a couple things. Likely it's a community of friends. So there's some kind of mutual trust. But also each of you have been schooled deep in the tradition of scales and modulation. And so you aren't like making this stuff up whole cloth. You are taking what you've been given and then you are riffing on it. That's what ethics is in the Christian tradition. Because there are so many things that are not prescribed for us, but in fact we are reacting to. You can see this happening inside the Bible itself. When Jesus steps on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking the tradition, you've heard it said, but I say. And he's offering sort of an expansive understanding of it. This is riffing on the tradition. Um, You can see this with Paul as he takes Judaism. And in light of the resurrection event, is having to rework the tradition to make sense about what has happened in the world. Does this make sense? So, this is the question. Uh, what moral, ethical, theological, cultural complexity is engaging your spirit? How might this church faithfully enter into this complexity with you? Uh, we thought it would be really disingenuous for us to come up with like three or four questions on three or four really safe topics to plan them out really well and then smooth the answers over till they look really polished and professional. That felt antithetical to what we are asking you all to do in the world. So we're going to take the training wheels off and we're just going to like chat together and we're going to 
show our work, if uh, that's the language you want to use. So, um, Pastor Gretchen, are you kind of collecting some of these? Oh, yes. Okay. Do you have one pulled first that we could jump into together? And then uh, we'll just kind of see where this goes. And someone keep time. We've got to be done at some point. I have to say, a lot of these are very meaty. Oh, goodness. <sighs> They're making you guys work today. <laughs> I, it's all hand? Okay. Um... <laughs> You're making me work. I'm glad I wore my sneakers today. The, the other thing, we've got one back here with Andrew. We've got one over here with Michael. Uh, don't take any of Perlman's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's one over there. Okay. As I'm grabbing yet another one, um, there are two that I pulled that are related. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, so I'll read both. First one is, how can I engage lovingly and faithfully with brothers and sisters whose theological and political stances differ so markedly from my own? How can I live out my, how can I bring my perspective in love, not anger, and listen to them when I disagree so vehemently, especially in terms of how to love them? And related to that is, how do I reconcile what I believe about God and Jesus, the Bible, with what other Christians believe when things are in direct opposition? Okay. I'm going to take both of these. Yeah, it's simple. Um, <laughs> Pastor Lindsay, 30 seconds or less. Uh, let me rephrase, let me, let me restate these for us so that we kind of have a shared understanding of what the question is. And um, here's the thing. My guess is that in each of these questions, there's a piece of this within a lot more people than just the person asking it. So if uh, this resonates with you, then know that you're not the only one who's struggling with this. Um, yeah, for sure. And honestly, this is probably stuff that we as a staff and leadership talk about a ton. So how can I engage lovingly and faithfully with brothers and sisters whose theological, political stances differ so markedly from my own? Um, how can I, living my perspective in love, not anger, listen when I disagree vehemently? Um, and especially how to hear them. So there's like, I mean, A, there's just a lot of really, I would say, vulnerable language in here. I mean, the language of brothers and sisters presupposes a kind of belonging and mutual togetherness. I'm just, part of what I want to do is pull out like the depth of the question being asked. Because part of what we're after here is where is the heart of Christ in the question? And then how can the spirit of Christ and wisdom of Christ lead us into the next steps in this? Um, you've got language of love and not anger, of listening and hearing, but disagreeing vehemently. So there even this language of like vehement it feels um, painful, if not violent. Yeah. Um, Okay, so actually, we talk about this a lot because this exists in our own family systems and in our own friendships over time. Do you want to offer anything you've learned about how do you disagree with folks who you share a common set of uh, words with, a common set of beliefs with, but they seem to sort of take very different expressions out in the world? What have you learned in that? I think that what's important is that idea of relationship continuing and so sometimes it feels like we want to fix those things in an instant when really it's going to take a long time of continued relationship with people. I experienced this with actually my closest friend from growing up. Um, 
and with our family systems. I think Ken's going to give all the answers to these, right? Yeah. And like, so pass. Yeah. So pass on this. Pass to Ken. <laughs> um, but this Seems actually fair. came up in our small group uh, this past week, um, looking at some of the friends in that, and we talked about this: how, how do we love well, and the importance of fostering relationship and understanding. And there are times where it's easier. I think Jason was talking about how it's easier to just, like, we'll just avoid all the hard topics. We just won't talk mm-hmm. about it. Um, and there might be times and moments, like, for example, Thanksgiving dinner, like, might actually be a good time to not engage with that. But how are we continuing to live in a relationship where we don't just shy away, but we engage and can love the other person despite a difference? Mm-hmm. I was also at a um, retreat yesterday where someone was talking about this similar situation and she really wanted to change her (laughs) father-in-law and what she ended up doing was actually a lot of work of her own and as god changed her and she expressed love to him she saw a change in that dynamic and in him as well and so the same way that god is patient with us when we are not in agreement with him Mm -hmm. we i think are called to love and be patient with others that's easier said than done uh, let me just look around and kind of ask the question if this, this, this set of, uh, prompts, is this resonating with other people in the room? Um, if you're brave enough, would you just show your hands? I'll raise mine in this because, um, the asker, part of it is knowing that they're in a community of friends struggling with the same kinds of things here. I love what you said about, Often we think about the way we act in the world as we choose A, B, or C because we want to change something. And there is a presupposition that certain people have certain access to power that can change things, uh, including people. And that becomes a really dangerous project. Like if my only goal as a pastor is to get you all to behave a certain way, this behavior modification, um, it really changes the power dynamic between us. It's no longer a community of mutuality and friendship whereby we can speak truth to one another across difference. It becomes something much more oppressive. And sometimes I think even with friendships, we take that kind of violent approach, even if it's just violent rhetoric, into those relationships to say, like, I can only be with this person if they agree with me on these sets of things. And then everything and every relationship becomes a kind of purity test. Mm -hmm. And Jesus seems to be hanging out with a lot of people he doesn't agree with. Now, here's the other thing about that is no, I'm not asking any of us to sit in the squishy middle where we believe nothing because we don't want to offend anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've, you have permission to show up in your relationships of meaning fully. It doesn't mean we show up violently, right? Like I, these are the things that I feel very strongly about. And if you don't feel those ways, then, um, there's several exits out of my home, right? It's something else. Uh, but I do think it is showing up and speaking honestly when the situation calls for it, because you want to be known too, right? Like it is not any fun and in fact, I would say it is not a real relationship if you were not allowed to be fully present in that relationship. Um, I love the way the question is asked because it is full of mm-hmm. um, compassion and I would say humility. But it also recognizes that those tensions are, are untenable if unspoken. Sometimes it's simply a speaking the difference that gives it some room to breathe. And to say, like, I, I actually think this about this thing and you think that about this thing. Do we still love each other? Um, sometimes the answer though is no, the love will fall apart. And that's like a situation that deserves mourning and grief 
and we've all been in those before. There are times in Jesus' ministry, and there's a kind of a this truism that part of the reason, maybe one of the main reasons Jesus is killed is because of what he undoes around family structures in Judaism. It's, he really threatens like a very central, stable part of their life. Um, your mom and your brothers are outside and want to talk to you, Jesus. And then Jesus says, like, who are my, who are my siblings and my parents, if not those who do the will of my father? Uh, that's a really dangerous statement. But we inherited families, we inherited friends, and then there are the, there's this community here that if you're a part of this family, you've inherited. Um, these are hopefully the people we can speak honestly with. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, Gretchen? You have another one that we can nuance into this one or take sure. in another direction. Yes, um, plenty more. There are lots along those lines. Um, here's one. As our culture attempts to be more inclusive of different lifestyles, behaviors, and activities... How can the church express that some lifestyles, behaviors, and activities are more spiritually edifying than others without appearing disinterested or judgmental? Nice. It's a great. It's a re- can I borrow the card? It's a really lovely framing of the question. Um, by the way, uh, this one here about these sort of differences, brothers and sisters, I really do recommend if you would want to engage us more to talk with Ken and with Pastor Gretchen about what's happening next week on not at 9 o'clock. Okay. As our culture attempts to be more inclusive of different lifestyles, behaviors, and activities, how can the church express that some lifestyles, behaviors, and activities are more spiritually edifying than others without appearing disinterested or judgmental? Um, you want me to take a first stab at this one since I asked you to take a stab at the last one? Um, so one of my heroes is uh, the late Will Campbell, who did a ton of really important work during the civil rights era, friend of King's, uh, worked in Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana. And in that work became really obviously very committed to the cause of racial justice. Um, the problem was he's from Mississippi and Louisiana, and his family and his people uh, had a very different understanding of race and belonging and who is worth what in the spectrum of, of humanity. Uh, and so this question... Uh, as our culture attempts to be more inclusive of different lifestyles, behaviors, activities, how can the church express that some are more spiritually edifying than others? Um, in the South, the Klan were predominantly Christians. We forget that reality often. Uh, and Campbell felt like Jesus' is called to love radically and to wrap his arms around people included those who were deeply steeped in racial ideology. Now, the question might have been asked in such a way that it's saying, what do we do with folks who are uh, have sort of a nuanced understanding about gender or sexuality? Or, but, like, what about the folks who have a very different understanding about race and identity and tribalism? Um, how do we speak generously to folks like that? Because, like, I would say that churches built monolithically across race is a dangerous proposition because it doesn't look anything like the kingdom of God. But there are some people that are deeply committed to both religion and a kind of racial understanding in the church. How do we speak to that space that is edifying, uh, that brings them into like a healing and a wholeness while still accepting that they are fully seen as children of God? Um, this is where it gets difficult for me. And so I'm trying my very best to implicate myself here. Because there are certain folks that I feel have been at the edges of safety and vulnerability for so long uh, that what they need is a place to heal. And the church, rather than ask the set of questions about do you, do you subscribe to these certain understandings about like family structures, um, the first thing they need to know, and for a while the only thing they need to know is that 
God sees them and loves them. Uh, and I can do that faithfully. Like I can encourage that kind of work faithfully. Where it gets difficult for me is when I see people who are seeing the exact opposite, who have taken up a really restrictive gospel and have weaponized it mm-hmm. against God's people. Um, Right now, we are trying to include, I would say, culturally, some really uh, mm, dangerous understandings of who belongs and who doesn't in our country. Um, so our culture attempts to be more inclusive of different behaviors and activities. How can the church express that lifestyles, behaviors, and activities are more spiritually edifying than others without appearing disinterested or judgmental? Um, the other thing I would say to this is, you remember those bracelets that people used to wear, the WWJD? I was just thinking about those this morning on the yeah? way to church. About some of what we're doing here? About that whole phrase, yeah, what so we're actually, about this morning. Do you all know the origins of the phrase, uh, what would Jesus do? You probably think it was this sort of like evangelical push toward uh, getting out in the world and living in a way that's pure, just like Jesus. It actually arose during the time the social gospel was rising up, and it was a way to think about the working poor. It was a way to think about those who've been trapped in systems of oppression. Uh, and the question became, what would Jesus do in those situations? And so sometimes I think that is just like a really good first question, is in a place of cultural nuance and, and different Understandings of what it means to be human, of what it means to be coupled, of what it means to be faithful. Uh, what does Jesus do in those situations? Do we know the Jesus story enough to even answer that question? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking a lot about the word would. I mean, I, the, the framework is yes, to help us <laughs> assume like this Christ-like response. But I think just to nuance the question, like what is Jesus doing? Like what's mm. he doing in this moment in our culture? Uh, He's active and involved. And then how am I going to respond with the Holy Spirit's leading in me? So what is he doing and how am I going to partner in that? Uh, That's what I was thinking about with that. Which feels relevant to that as well. And reading the Bible and the gospel through the lens of folks that aren't like you. And how how is that gospel going to fall on their ears? What's the perspective that is not, you know germane to us that we might need to step into Mm -hmm. Uh, part of a theology of jesus is itself a deep curiosity about where we we might find jesus in the world Mm -hmm. um what you said what is jesus doing or where is jesus present Mm -hmm. and one of the things that you find in the early church and you find also jesus enacting is that um it is surprising the places where uh, the spirit of god is found in the world and Christ's presence in our world today will be uh, unsettling at times. Each time we cleave off people and say, like, this group doesn't belong to us anymore because of a certain set of convictions, or this group doesn't belong to us anymore, part of what we're doing as well is we are losing um, a lot in that divorce. And if we think about a tendency to be expansive, uh, Father Boyle talks about expanding that circle of belonging, continuing to draw that circle wider and wider until you realize no one is standing outside the circle of God's love and affection. Um, But also in bringing folks back to the table who have been sent away from the table, they will likely carry back with them um, goods from God that you had lost 
we have lost. And that's also the grand wager that we're making is um, not simply that we enter into these conversations or relationships trying to fix something again, but with a deep curiosity that God might teach us something in the exchange. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is like a really great sort of way to think about this, this hunger and thirst for God, for baptism. What? What is standing in my way from entering into those waters? And then he's, he's baptized. We see in him a kind of moral exemplar. But how in the world would we have ever known if, when that story was written that we were allowed to even look at Ethiopian eunuchs as anything other than those in need? Uh, that's one of the things that I've been like really always pleasantly surprised about. If you work with the... Um, Folks who are experiencing homelessness, for instance, and you ask them, like, what does it mean for God to be present in your communities? You will learn something about the generosity that exists on the margins of the vulnerable that we just don't think about anymore, right? Like, my life is predicated on the ability to to fend for myself, to, to sort of fix my family of four and our dog, and then everybody's kind of on their own place. But what about communities that are so vulnerable that you cannot survive alone? That's something the church needs to remember how to speak. And those folks coming into our space will teach us. Um, so I think that's where the sort of the curiosity to expand our understanding of who is part of our family sort of accrues to our own um, virtue. Gretchen? Um, how do we, the church, be agents of healing for those suffering moral injury that has been caused by the church? That is, when Christians or the church are the source of moral injury. Can I borrow the card just so I can hold it? There's something about even the way that handwriting is on these that feels very, uh, like, of the person. Um, how can we, the church, be agents of healing for those who have suffered moral injury that has been caused by the church when the church has been the source itself? Um, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, let me offer a first, and then I would love to hear, Lindsay. Um, I just want to, as a... Representative, We are both pastors on this staff, and so it may not be at the hands of this institution. It may not be at the hands of us as pastors, but we sit in office. And so it's important to say, like, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, one of the things we get really used to as pastors is uh, an honest ability to say sorry when we screw up. And we're trying our very best not to increase the injury that churches have done over time, but do recognize that we sit in institutions that have been bruising and violent at different times for folks. Um, and I don't want to sort of wiggle out of that and say, I can't believe those people behave that way. And uh, we would never do such a thing because we're going to disappoint y'all at some point because we're humans too. Uh, and the only thing we can say to that is like, we're sorry when it happens and um, we're trying to do better. I don't know if that's always true of every congregation, but it is, we're trying to make that more and more true here. And it's always good to know that the people around you are carrying wounds into this space. And for some people, that wound sounds like Jesus because they've not heard of the Jesus that's actually speaking through our stories and through our spirits. They've, they've encountered a weaponized Jesus. And there needs to be some care, I think, and compassion and understanding around that. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you resonate with the question because that's an incredibly vulnerable posture. Um, but a lot of us carry around this kind of wound of moral injury around religion specifically. Um, Pastor Lindsay, what would you add to that? I mean, just knowing 
you who sit here, I mean, and we know your stories, so I feel like that's actually a part of this, the formation of this very community and people, that people have brought that and felt safe enough to come back here and maybe see if God is something different than what they had before. I can say that in our kids program, Mary has a saying that we hold tightly, and if you've been trained with us, then you know it too, but we, we really try hard with our, our kids and youth um, not to teach them anything that they're going to have to unlearn later about who God is, about who they are. Um, and so that's something that we're always holding tightly as a value, and it's not always easy, and we're always trying to check ourselves um, and trying to, to quickly yeah, apologize and realize when we have. But when I think about the way that we talk to kids about God and who they are, then that just informs how I would talk to anybody about who God is. It's asking a lot. I think it's asking a lot of people to live into the tension of this question, which is um, to show up in a place and to say to folks, this is where it hurts. Mm -hmm. This is where it hurts. And the amount of trust it takes to, to be exposed like that uh, is is huge. And I again, part of what we're doing as First Baptist of Pasadena is to create a congregation that trusts one another enough to say, this is where it hurts. Can you see this and still stay with me in this pain? Um, and so one of the things I would say to this is it is a gift every time you are honest. It is a gift to us and to your neighbors sitting next to you um, when you show these wounds in a way that you trust. You're building this trust up over time. Uh, and I can't guarantee you that it will always go well. There will be times where you show a wound, uh, right? Some This person in my life has died and it was unexpected and it makes no sense. And where is God in this moment? And someone will say something too simple and too untrue because the situation is just too painful and tense and it will leave a new wound. Uh, but you've got to risk it because you can't carry this stuff by yourself. That's part of it too is like the life we're asking you to lead is impossible to lead in isolation from one another. The gift that God gives to the world is the church. Uh, it is not individual converted Christians, but it is the community or the body of Christ acting together. Uh, and if we can't show up with those wounds as a place of healing, then we're going to never be able to show up. And you've got to be able to show up to do the work we have to do in the world. Um, I'm not going to read these questions verbatim, um, but there are a couple of people who submitted questions surrounding work uh-huh. um, when their values seem to conflict with the values of the company oh, or the job that they're being asked to do. Hard pass. <laughs> It's funny, you know, it's like when the question's really esoteric, I can, we can talk and talk, but this one's like, oh no, what do you do on Monday when you show back up at nine o'clock and you're all of a sudden in this realm that is soul grinding? Uh, can I, so you, you've done like a good a bit of paraphrasing here on this one, right? Um, so maybe part of the question is like, what happens when work itself is a place of moral injury? Um, okay. Well, we work together, so. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked this question. No. Yeah. How do you I'm respond dying to, ask this to question. working in a place where it's, uh, oh, let's be honest, 
churches and institutions like this can often be places of moral injury yes. where the pretending that has to take place inside a church itself is like deeply untrue to the people we are. Uh, right? Show up and believe all the right things in all the right ways fully or you no longer fit on this staff. Like that's a really dangerous set of things to have to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've worked in lots of different environments. You've been a teacher before. Uh, you had done some ministry even this last weekend with folks who were in an environment that is really morally hazardous. Like, what, do you, what are your thoughts around this? I think it depends a lot, too, on if you're able to show up and be fully yourself, whether you're being asked to participate in something that you feel goes against your own kind of moral compass. Obviously, that's might be a time to consider if that's the place that you need to stay. But in situations where, I mean, I've worked in environments where I felt I wasn't able to bring my full self or I was, I guess I was maybe just not brave enough um, because I, I knew or I assumed that people had a certain view of Christians and, and I didn't want them to attach a bunch of the negative things that were part of, you know, what we would talk about the church that had not done well to me and my own beliefs. And so rather than engage i have at times been more afraid and tried to just leave that out of it but our hope is that we don't live these compartmentalized lives that we are integrating our faith into yeah the rest of our week that we're not just doing that on sunday so i don't have a great answer for that except to know that it's hard but i also i also learned that sometimes i made a lot of assumptions about other people and their beliefs and then when I actually got to know them better or have deeper conversations, I realized that maybe we weren't so different or that there was space to have good dialogue. Um, so sometimes you can just make that snap judgment and kind of block off any sort of connection that could actually be fruitful. It's really tough to not turn off your uh, humanity, but it's really tempting to do so in these situations. There was this conflict. You can look at the questions a little bit tighter, too. Uh, there was this conflict in the early church about whether Christians could serve as politicians. Because to be a politician was like a really dangerous position to take, and you were often having to face lots of moral ambiguity or split allegiances. Like, do you belong to Christ more than you belong to Caesar? That's a dangerous question to have to answer. And also, could you, could you serve as a, uh, someone in the military? And the churches have various answers to these questions over time. But one thing that's been like really clear in the best practices of vocational complexity is there are simply some fields of service that are morally hazardous, or to use that language from the last question, morally injurious. And the first step, I think, is to name it as such and to not lose sight of it as such. The fact that you're struggling with it in the realms that I'm feeling the struggle in these questions means that you still have a sense of that kind of like humanity, the sort of Christ vision about you that you can even acknowledge this is askew right so how do you keep that sense that things are askew while you necessarily can't change the situation like one of the ways that this might happen and it's happened in some communities is when soldiers go off to war and they have to engage in killing there is a place and a space for them when they come back to heal where they are able to name the ways they had to violate their own inner integrity Uh, these actions were impossible at the time and i've done things that i am not proud of now our, our, our kind of national narrative says you are you have to be proud of all things you have done in service of country. But that's not true. Sometimes the things we ask our soldiers to do, it creates 
PTSD, right? Like some of the largest communities of post-traumatic stress are folks whose jobs have been so morally injurious. And the inability for them to talk about the injury that they have sustained in that work is part of what keeps the, the wound bleeding. So what would it mean if you worked with certain communities, police, uh, Zach, you do this kind of work where you work across all of these different coalitions and you try to speak to those, that Christ part of people to awaken that in them uh, and also to offer them a space to confess, to say like every day I have to do things that does not align with how I understand God's asking me to be in the world. And my life approximates to the life I think God has for me. Um, yeah, that's just true, right? My life just approximates to the life God has for me at all kinds of different moments. Um, to acknowledge, I think, the, the honesty in the question, and at least as a first step to, to say you're sorry for having to continually stay in these spaces um, that can dehumanize you. Um, get some friends that you can talk to and be honest with that maybe aren't in that workspace to say, like, I'm kind of losing myself here, mm-hmm. right? I'm kind of losing myself here, and I cannot see straight where the gospel is asking me to go. And then sometimes you need to switch. <laughs> you need to switch. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes the more something is kind of nudging and tugging at us, I mean, God might be trying to, to, to do something there, yeah. either within that context, or it, it might mean that, yeah, there's a, a move that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. This is one that feels very much of the church, right? Like, if you're asking this question in isolation, then your your community is too small. Uh, And in fact, even this community of just you and I talking about it is still too small. Mm -hmm. So find some folks who can listen well, who you trust, Mm -hmm. and share with them what you're going through. This is the beauty of like AA, right? This is the beauty of recovery work, is that you're in a community of people who you can show up fully and be seen and say that the life that I've been leading has, has caused me to walk down paths that have brought me to some places I'm not proud of. Um, but will you see me through this and walk with me? I probably have time for one more unless you ask a really, really easy, give it like a super easy one <laughs> you want to ask. All right. Well, I, I have two more that might be nice, but... Um... You can ask both and then we'll just choose the okay. one that scares us. Question A. <laughs> how do we know what is our work to do in a world that needs so much and how do we follow the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. That's question A. Question B. As a Christian, how do I keep a happy attitude when there is so much sadness in our country and world? Oh, ah. Can I see the questions? Yeesh. Um, so that's the question about happiness. And I, I have like a really pithy response to that one, so I won't say that one right away. How do we know what is our work to do in a world that needs so much? How do we follow the Holy Spirit? Um, I think about this all the time because... I often think that my job in the world is to fix the world. And so when the world is so broken, I'm like, this is just, all this stuff is too big for me. And so it moves me into like cynicism, right? Like if I can't fix it all, then why would I even try? And what's the work to do? Again, presupposes that I am able to do something in the world to change the structure of things. For me, the question here is, how do you live faithfully in a world that is so broken? Um, not even necessarily how do you fix the brokenness in the world, but how do you live faithfully in a world that breaks others and, and intends to break you? How do you act faithfully when the outcomes are unknown? Like, man, it would have been a lot easier. Jesus would have just called those angels down whenever they were walking him to the cross and would have just ended all of the bad people right then. It would have been a lot cleaner. 
And if Jesus would have just, you hear this sometimes from people like, why doesn't God just show up and tell me to believe in God? And then this would all be easier. Jesus seems to choose the hard way over and over again where the outcomes are unknown. Submitting unto death and leaning into the hope that God can undo even this. So sometimes the next thing to do is just the next thing to do. There's this one guy I love, I kind of held this story for the day, um, by Andre Trachma. So he was a late pastor in uh, Huguenot uh, village in La Chambon, France. And there were these folks who'd been reading the Bible. They had kind of been steeped in the kind of early Anabaptist tradition. So Huguenots and Baptists have some shared heritage. Deeply committed to nonviolence, deeply committed to solidarity with those who were suffering. And guess what happened? All of a sudden, these little Jewish children started showing up in this village to ask for shelter because they were being hunted. And this community had no like rule book about what you do when young Jewish kids show up asking for shelter. They did know that if they housed them, that they would likely be killed. And so they were faced with this unknown situation. And what they had been doing in their worship services is they had been preaching the Sermon on the Mount like over and over and over again. They had been training their vision to see Jesus when Jesus showed up. And they just said, like, when the Spirit of God shows up on our doorstep asking for shelter, we just kind of did what we thought we were supposed to do. The next right thing. And this phrase that he carried around for a while that I carry around is each day make one small move against destructiveness. Uh, you don't have to fix the world, but you do have to do the next thing. And often we kind of know what the next thing is, right? Like you just, when we're not trying to fix it, but we're just trying to walk with Christ. What's the thing being called for there? The person and their humanity, like what's it calling out for? Outcomes become dangerous because then we start to choose expedient path to get there. And when what we're trying to do is change certain things, we might wield the weapons of the world to enact those changes. And that's the secret of the cross, is that Jesus had the option to pick up the sword to enact the change necessary, and yet he doesn't, because the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world. And so the, the the tools that we wield, the bodies that we bear, the actions that we present to the world will make no sense because our outcomes are different than the world's outcomes. Um, but we are always living toward the kingdom of God. And so each action, I think, is a nudge um, and an approximation because we are people with a long view of time. Not all of these things will get done in this week, in this month, in our lifetime. Folks who are fighting for fair housing in L.A., that is not going to get done overnight. It is going to take a long journey and lots of people working so that everyone has shelter. And the language of fair housing is also the language of the Bible, that everyone would have a fig tree that they could sit under the shade and be safe. Like that is the good land and the good life. So these things take time as well. Um, what would you add to that? And then we'll figure out how to teach you how to be happy. <laughs> I guess I would just add that it's important to pay attention to the things that really kind of light your heart on fire when you think about issues. I mean, of course, there are like endless things. And as soon as you hear about something, it, it may not be that you don't care about this one, but this one just seems to really light that fire. And that could be God, you know, telling you that this is something you specifically have been called in this time to give voice to or to give action to. 
I know that's been true for me, like the same similar kind of issues keep coming up and catching my attention and there's a desire. And so it's important to pay attention to those. Mm-hmm. And I think to consider your own experience, where have you been? Who do you know? Who's in your sphere of influence? And how is that giving you maybe a unique position or perspective or a connection to be able to do a work that God may be inviting you to do for justice or for your neighbor? And that may change over time too. And so I think it's important to pay attention also to just your natural gifts and talents. A lot of times you might not think they're spiritually related, but there are avenues to use the things that God's placed in you. So I would say it's important to pay attention to those and yeah, not try to fix everything, but to ask, you know, God, what are you inviting me into in this season? And what are the tools that you've given me to do that? I love that what you said too about seeking out people who might have some different understanding around these things you're mm-hmm. feeling convicted about. Uh, when I get, you know, I've never experienced homelessness, for instance. Um, I mean, we've had some financial scarcity in our family over the last, you know, 30 plus years for various reasons. Um, and my dad spent a season living out of his van in college because that was the way he needed to make ends meet. So like I have some access to some of these things, but not a lot. So when I feel a sense of inner tension around housing access, like I really need to talk to some people who really know what that's like, who have either lived on the streets um, or currently living on the streets, who have friends who are in parks overnight and, and listen I think listen to what those needs are. Mm-hmm. Listen to who those people are. Not see folks as problems to be fixed, but as people to be loved and to know. Um, to see them as belonging to us as well, I think radically changes things. Um, we'll offer one word on the happiness thing, and we're going to run over about three or four minutes. So sorry, Leslie. Sorry, Pastor Leslie. Um, can I borrow the, the card? The question is something about, um, as Christians, how do I keep a happy attitude when there's so much sadness in our country and world? Um, so I'm just going to nuance the question a little bit to say happiness is not a theological category. And joy is. Um, blessing is. Beauty is. And so uh, no one is asking any of us to be bright-sided about the world. Sometimes things are just terrible and they hurt. And uh, we aren't going to be able to smile through them. Um, the question, though, is how do we maintain joy, I think is a very... And, I, and actually, I think underneath this question is that question of how do we maintain joy in the midst of suffering? Um, the first thing I would say, in, and it's a good to always, as Baptists mentioned, our, our sacred central text, um, go read Philippians. Paul's in prison, and it's the book full of joy. Um, that joy and suffering are, in fact, not opposed, but part of the same fabric. And sometimes the suffering that we feel the pain that we feel is because uh, we know that things are not as they are supposed to be. And joy is often believing the promise that they can be different um, and to notice where they already are becoming new. Go read Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison and sense joy and beauty as he's finding it in the scariest of places. Um, No one is asking us to be sullied and uh, ashen our entire lives because the world is so complicated. Uh, we can be full of the spirit of God, uh, which is rejoicing in hallelujahs and embrace and also be working for justice and mercy in the world at the same time. Sometimes the biggest activists in the world are also the funniest kinds of people. There's a story of... Um, of Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, reuniting with the Dalai Lama, and they were both very good friends. 
And they both had been through intense suffering in their professional lives. And in their meeting, the story goes that they like rush each other on the stage and they embrace and then almost fall down like hugging and tickling and laughing. And, and there's this kind of overflow of gratitude that I think they possess even in the midst of some of the hardest human work that we do in the world. Um, so how do we hold, I think a lot of what we do in this congregation, a lot of what we've done in this conversation is how do we hold paradox? How do we hold things that often feel like we have to choose in the same breath, in the same person, in the same community? Can we feel deeply when the world is hurting and also be the kind of people who can offer beauty and hope back into that world? Can we be those kinds of agents? Can we sustain that kind of tension internally without breaking apart? Um, God seems to say yes. And the witness of Christ seems to say this isn't just possible, <clears throat> but necessary. Um, any last word on that? <clears throat> I would just add that, you know, we sang that song, Joy, this morning. And it's not, we didn't sit in worship planning and think, yeah, everyone in our congregation is actually really happy right now. So this is a good Sunday for us to sing joy. Because, like, everybody's going to be feeling joyous already. I think sometimes we, yeah, step into that, often through song. It's a powerful way but even when I just see you on a Sunday morning, there is a deep joy that wells up within me. And it's not because all of the things that are hard and painful in my life have gone away. So I think being in community is a really big piece of tapping into God's joy and into the joy of the spirit as we go through seasons of life together that are hard and challenging. But yet we can call each other together and help share our joy with each other mm-hmm. um, because it becomes contagious. I think that's true. That's really, so that's a great last word that the place where joy is cultivated is most often in the community of God's people. Mm-hmm. And part of what we are doing when we gather together is telling a larger story than the small ones we are encountering across our lives. And deep joy, I think is a function of an integrated life where all of a sudden you feel like you were being made whole. That is the language of salvation. Uh, become perfect or become uh, holy as your father in heaven is holy or perfect is the way that the Bible talks about it. This congregation, when we are doing the work we are supposed to do, we are helping to hold each other together in a kind of inner integrity. That you can step into this space and feel like you are not dissipated. right? You are not destroyed or disintegrated, but you are in fact being knit back together. It's part of the beauty of Eucharist or communion at the center of one of our practices is that it is itself a practice that integrates us back to each other and back to God. Um, that is beautiful, beautiful work and leads me to great joy. It, it sends me out every Sunday with gratitude, even if the Sunday is exhausting because it's still work, um, because that's a project worth giving everything to. Um, and you make that possible, that work. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank so you. much yeah. for sitting up here with me. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to ask, would you offer us a prayer as we transition back into singing together? Sure. Thank you all so much for your generosity. If you had questions that we didn't get to, we're going to hold on to those and, and it might show up again in the future. We might offer some written responses to some of these. Uh, I do think it's important that you see us thinking out loud with you. Nothing we've said is the final word on anything, um, but I want you to know that we are in this struggle with you and really, really grateful, I think, for a congregation where we can struggle out loud. Mm-hmm. I, that's how I feel and I know you do too. Um, So prayer of gratitude, would you offer it? Sure. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone who's here, for this community, for the chance to pursue you together, to go through the rhythms of our life together, to reshape our desires each Sunday, and to come back together, to know each other by name. Thank you for inviting us into challenge, into risk, 
into unknown. It's scary, but it's often where we get to know you the best and where we get to become more of who you've called us to be. So we pray that you would do that in us as we go out today and in the coming week, that your presence would be palpable to us, that you are there and that we would feel it and know it, that we could offer your joy to others, that we would step into alignment with the ways that you are working to bring about your kingdom and that we trust for you to do that work and that we can do it with you. We thank you for these friends. Pray that we continue to honor you and to draw nearer to you as we sing together. In Jesus' name, amen.